Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Ezra is uh, a few books over from the Psalms, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. That's at least one of the Old Testament books that we like to read. So Ezra will be a few books over to the left. While you're turning there, I just want to let you know that if you did not know, we send out a daily email devotional called The Vine throughout the week. If you're not a part of that, I would encourage you to get one of the connection cards, write your name and your email legibly. People sign up for emails all the time and they just chicken scratch it and we don't know who to send it to. Sign this out and write on the back, sign me up for The Vine, sign me up for email, devotionals, whatever. Here's what we're doing for uh, beginning tomorrow, Lord willing, we're going to start sending out study questions based on Sunday sermons so that you and your small groups with your family can be discussing God's word throughout the week. And then we'll pick back up on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in our devotionals during the emails with the New City Catechism, and then we'll have a devotional for Friday. So if you're not a part of that, I would encourage you to sign up for that. Let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, we were just singing that you do not faint and you never grow weary. And I read in Isaiah this morning, God, that Jacob, Israel, the nation of Israel, quit calling upon you and they grew weary of you, Isaiah 43, 22 says. God, may we never be a church who grows weary of you, who's bored with you. May we never be a church who grows tired of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, God. So we ask you at the outset of this sermon, at the outset of this sermon series, that you would be begin stirring our hearts once again to love you and to serve you, God. So come and do that for your glory and come and do that for our joy in you and come and do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll notice our new sermon graphic there. If we can go back, there you go. I, I'm a child of the 80s, um, so I thought this would be a great video game. Uh, I could see an Atari game called The City of God where you have two players with a shovel and a sword. If you're familiar with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll know why they have a shovel and why they have a sword. But uh, some of you are grieving because Flappy Bird, if you play that game, that app, if you have that app, it's going off the app store today sometime. The creator's yanking it down. So if any one of you out there is creative and you can can create an app for me that I can play on my iPhone called the City of God, where you have two men who are building the wall and fighting off enemies, I would love you forever. I might name our next child after you. So we're beginning a new series today. That's just how I express myself creatively as a pastor, just coming up with these sermon slides. We begin a new exposition in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah today. In the Hebrew Bible, they are one book, and that's why we are covering them together. I've titled this series, The City of God, because these books will teach us how to live as the city of God in this world, to actually be what Jesus said we're called to be in Matthew 5 when he said, you are a city on a hill. We will learn how to be the city of God within the city of Santa Maria. We will learn how to be the city of God shining forth the light of the gospel being the alternative society within our own society. These books will help us to do that. 
by way of introduction, a few of the major theological themes that will emerge from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are first and foremost, the sovereignty of God or the providence of God, which controls all of history. Kind of as an umbrella over the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you could put uh, chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 5, which is titled Of Providence, says this, and it, it is kind of like an umbrella over these books. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So the, one of the major themes in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, is the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, which controls all of history. Another thing that we'll see in these books is that the world hates the people of God. And Jesus said that. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. We will see that the world hates and resists the people of God. We will also see the importance of the service of the people of God. Our service in the community of faith, in the covenant family. Serving, using our time, our talents, and our treasures. And we will also see the tendency of the people of God to be unfaithful to God. That we are sinners and we lack holiness in our lives. We will see in these books our tendency as God's people to be discouraged in this world, to be fearful in this world. And lastly, we will see the faithfulness of the sovereign God to his covenant people. We will see that God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. Now, to better understand these books, we need to get into a time machine and go back to Persia around 539, 538 BC. We are in a period of Israel's history known as the post-exilic period. The nation of Israel is about to come out of exile. They're about to come out of the darkest moment in their history. When Ezra 1 begins, we are wrapping up 1,000 years of Israel's history. From the time of Jacob and his family in Egypt, all the way to the nation of Israel, about to leave 70 years of exile in Babylon. Now, the question here is, how did the nation experience this exile into Babylon? What were they exiled from? Well, here's a quick Old Testament survey to help us answer this. As we go through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will hear we refer to the Lord as Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name. Every time you see, like in verse 1 of Ezra 1.1, when you see the name Lord, and it's in all capital letters, that's letting us know us English-speaking people, that in the Hebrew, this is Yahweh, God's covenant name. So to answer this question of how they got into exile, what were they exiled from, remember that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, had rescued Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh 
And he did that through the leadership of Moses. Then you remember Joshua led the nation into the promised land. After Joshua died, the nation began turning away from the Lord. You can read about that in the book of Judges. In time, though, the people began asking God for a king. So Saul became the first king of Israel. He turned away from the Lord. And then David became king. And then David's son Solomon became king. And he built the temple. You can read about that. In First Kings. In time, though, the nation was split into Israel in the, the northern kingdom and Judah, which was the southern kingdom. And the books of First and Second Kings cover the rise and fall of many kings in both the northern and the southern kingdom, most of whom end up turning away from Yahweh the Lord. But in time, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then 150 years later, Judah, the southern kingdom, fell to the Babylonians in 605 B.C. So there's a quick Old Testament summary to catch us up to where we need to be at this part of the story. Jerusalem, the great city of God, and the beautiful temple that Solomon had built were leveled by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. BC. Everything was destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground. City walls were destroyed. And eventually, the people of God and the temple treasures were carted off to Babylon into exile in a foreign land, away from the promised land. The irony here is that all of the idols and the gods that they worshiped instead of Yahweh the sovereign Lord were from Babylon, and they actually got carted off to Babylon as if God was saying, if you want these gods, here you go. You can worship them in Babylon. We fast forward 70 years after they're in exile in Babylon. It's around 538 B.C., and that's where we land in Ezra chapter 1. Here's something to remember. Whether in exile or coming out of exile, Israel needs to remember something. In fact, God's people always need to remember this truth in any age, whenever things go south or whenever it looks like things are falling apart and going south. What truth do we need to rehearse over and over again as the people of God? That truth is our big idea. The big idea of chapter one is this. God's word controls history because history is his story. In other words, this moment in Israel's history, coming out of Babylon, this moment in the history of Israel, the covenant people God, this is not some random moment in their history. And the same can be said of us. The same can be said of the people of God in any age. Things are not just happening. God has a plan. God has a story. And his story actually began even before Genesis 1. God's story, God's plan began in eternity past. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption, that God covenanted together, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to create a people who would fall away and he would redeem them. Danny Hyde describes the covenant of redemption. From all of eternity, God the Father... God the Son and God the Holy Spirit covenanted to share their eternal love and fellowship with their creatures. In human terms, 
God the Father covenanted to create a people whom he knew would sin and to choose from this fallen mass a great multitude that no one could number and to give them to Christ, whom he, the Father, would crush on the cross according to his eternal will. The Son covenanted to accomplish their redemption and the Holy Spirit covenanted to apply the work of the Son to those the Father chose. That is the starting place. If we are to get the big picture of the Bible, from eternity past, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we're moving history as we know it towards the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring about redemption. The redemption of sinners like you and like me for his glory. That is the big story, the big idea of the Bible. So, as we arrive in our time machines, we've been in a time machine traveling this whole time since I asked you to get in a time machine with me. As we arrive in Persia in 538 BC, we must remember that this is where God's story is headed. God is restoring his people to the land that they had forfeited through their disobedience and through their rebellion. But in time, God the Father will send Jesus, the Redeemer, to accomplish the plan of redemption. But for now, we're in Persia. It's 538 BC, where we will see that God's word controls history because history is his story. So look at verses 1 through 4 of Ezra chapter 1 with me and hear the word of the Lord. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus becomes the king. God stirs his heart to send his people back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. Well, what was life like living in Persia if you were an Israelite? If you were a transplanted Israelite who was removed from Israel and now was in Persia, what was it like? Well, it wasn't really bad in Persia. Since Cyrus became the king, since Cyrus defeated the Babylonians, life was pretty easy. You have to contrast, as an Israelite, life under the Babylonians and life under the Persians. In Babylon, when Babylon was in control, the Israelites were ridiculed and abused Life in Babylon was rough for the Israelites. Life in Babylon was very difficult. Israel was ridiculed and shamed continually. Yahweh, their God, the sovereign Lord, was mocked by the Babylonians. You can read about how they were mocked in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, our instruments. 
For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You see, Israel longed to return to Jerusalem. They longed to return to the promised land. How could they sing songs of Yahweh's salvation when they were exiled in Babylon because of their disobedience? But remember, God had a plan. As the exiles were in Babylon, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, stirred the heart of Jeremiah, the prophet, to write them a letter to encourage them about God's plan. You can read about it, we will, in Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, and here's the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the people who were exiles in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, notice a couple of things. We're not going to do an exposition of this passage. Notice a couple of things. Israel was to stay where they were for 70 years, to get planted, and to work and pray for the peace of the cities that they were living in in Babylon. Pray for it. When the city prospers, you prosper. Don't hide away like believers always do. We hide away from the world. Get out there. Make friends. Influence people. Pray for the city. When it prospers, you prosper. But then God said, after 70 years, know that I'm going to bring you out of Babylon, and I'm going to put you back on Israelite soil. God had a plan for his people. And in time, God brought that plan to fruition when Babylon fell to Persia, to Cyrus. 
Israel had suffered in exile under Babylon, but then the Persians come along. What was it like living for a couple of years under the Persian king Cyrus? The Persians, man, they had a, we've got covered California. The Persians had like protected Persia. I mean, they, they, they took care of you. They wanted to know that they were for you. They knew that oppression was not the way to deal with the subjects in your country. So they let people worship the gods that they wanted to. In fact, they enabled them and helped them to worship whoever they wanted to worship. They actually supplied them with resources, said, you want to worship that God? Let me help you worship that God. Persia treated the Israelites very well. But in 538 BC, the Lord began stirring the heart of Cyrus, the king of the Persians, so that he might send his people back to Israel. Cyrus made a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom that the Israelites could return to Jerusalem to worship their God, Yahweh. So imagine the blitzkrieg on the media back in the day. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Twitter, Facebook. Everyone finds, about, finds out about what Cyrus has proclaimed. Everyone is reading and analyzing his speech. Everyone is talking about the decree of Cyrus. But understand something, Grace. It's not so much the words of Cyrus that matter. There's another word that is controlling history. The word of Yahweh is orchestrating all of the events in this passage. Look at verse 1 again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. The decree of Cyrus allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem, the city of God, to rebuild the temple of God. All of this was prophesied by Jeremiah 70 years earlier, which we just read. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah that he recorded in a letter and sent off to these exiles, it is now being fulfilled here in Ezra 1. But it's being fulfilled not because Cyrus is some good-hearted guy. Things are happening the way they are because of the word of the Lord. The Lord stirred the heart and the mind and the spirit of Cyrus What this shows us, Grace, is that God stirs the hearts and minds of human beings for his sovereign purposes. God stirs the hearts and minds of every human being on this planet for his sovereign purposes. As Matthew Henry says, God governs the world by his influence on the spirits of men. And whatever good is done at any time, it is God that stirs up the spirit to do it, puts thought into the mind, gives to the understanding to form right judgment, and directs the will which way he pleases. In other words, God's word controls history because history is his story. Do you see what verses 1 through 4 are screaming out at us, Grace? 
They're telling us that the leaders of this world are just pawns on the grand checkerboard of God. He moves them, he directs them according to his will. That means what Barack Obama does, he does because the sovereign God is moving him according to his will. What Vladimir Putin does is what he does is because Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is moving and directing him according to his sovereign purpose. That ought to encourage your heart. No man is doing anything of his own free will in this world. The sovereign God is moving and directing history because history is his story and not our story. Now, look at verses 5 through 6 because I'm getting worked up. (laughs) Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. God's word controls history because history is his story, and his people are a part of his story. In other words, God moves history for his people. God moves history for his people. Not only does God stir the hearts and minds of kings and leaders, but he also stirs the hearts of his people. But notice what the Lord stirred them up to to do, to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Here God is stirring his people up to worship public worship. They will begin rebuilding the temple that they may worship as the Lord has commanded. Grace, this is what matters. This is always what matters or should matter to the people of God. Public worship, coming together as the covenant people of God, as the covenant family of God, and worshiping and delighting in the God that we serve. That is always what matters and should matter to us. Here in Ezra 1, public worship as a community is being restored. And Yahweh is the one who is doing all of the stirring. Verses 5 and 6 should humble us. Why? Because the Lord has to stir our hearts to worship. That's how sinful we are. We need God to stir our hearts to get excited about his story. Now sure, sometimes we come in here and we're pumped and we're primed and ready to worship and we're ready to be busy about the kingdom of God seeing in advance. But if you're like me, I often need God to stir and to move my heart. And that's why you read many verses in the Psalms where David and the psalmist will scream out for God's intervention into their hearts. Like Psalm 86, 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And say, God, you've got to make me happy in you. You've got to stir my heart because I'm distracted 
Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to getting gain. God, you've got to bend my heart to your word because I love so many other things. Psalm 86.11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. God, you've got to gather all the affections of my heart because they're just spreading everywhere like a flood. You've got to bring my heart in and unite it to fear your name, to honor you. Or Psalm 43, verses 3 through 4, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Sometimes you've got to pray, God, send out your light and truth. Let them lead me into your presence, because when your light and your truth lead me into your presence, it is then that I will be reminded that you are my exceeding joy in this world. You see, the psalmist is humbled that's why David and the psalmist write these words. David knows that if God doesn't do these things in his heart, then he won't worship. Be humbled today, Grace. You need God in order to worship God. But we probably don't believe this. We just mosey in here on Sunday morning and we don't prepare our hearts and we just expect something to happen, we prepare better for football games. We dress up in jerseys, we paint our faces, we pack the cooler with food and drink, we drive to the stadium with excitement, or we better prepare for football at home. How many of us prepared for the Super Bowl? We bought the chips, we heard Valveda's gonna go out of stocks, so we gotta make some of that queso. I mean, we are preparing for football. What about church? Do you prepare your heart for worship? Do you prepare your heart to worship the Lord on the Sabbath? Do you even recognize the Sabbath as binding on you? It is one of the Ten Commandments. What priority do you give to gathering each week with the people of God? Or do you stuff yourself all week long on Sports Center and HGTV and Oprah? And you never pray or crack open a Bible. And then you come in here expecting something to happen. Or as I heard one preacher say once, we stuff ourselves on the white bread of secularism. And we come into church and we're too, too stuffed. We're not hungry for God. And he says, so the pastor has to spend an hour within a medic getting people to vomit up the world just so they can begin to have a taste and a hankering for God. Listen, you've got to pray. God, change me. God, stir my heart. Let me see Jesus. Let me see the gospel as the most beautiful treasure in this world. You've got to pray this for you. You've got to pray this for your spouse. You've got to pray this for your children. You've got to pray this for this church. Pray that God would begin stirring us up to be the people of God and to be the city of God here in Santa Maria. But you have to pray for it. It just doesn't happen. As Ian Bounds said, would you be free from the bondage to corruption? Grow in grace in general? Grow in grace in particular? If you would, your way is plain. 
ask of God more faith. Beg of him morning and noon and night while you walk by the way, while you sit in the house, when you lie down and when you rise up. Beg of him simply to impress divine things more deeply on your heart, to give you more and more of the substance of things hoped for and of the evidence of things not seen. And the reason these prayers are recorded in the Psalms the reason that they're great prayers to pray is that they are in line with God's story. God wants to stir our passions because it's in line with his word, in line with his story. If, if all of creation, all of life as we know it, is all about Jesus coming and redeeming sinners for his glory and them finding their joy in him, don't you think it's something you should pray for every day? that people would come to know Jesus and find their joy in him, and that you, as a redeemed sinner, would say, Jesus, let me have my joy in you. If this is what eternity, what life is all about, don't you think it's a good thing to pray these prayers? Robert Murray Machine said, it is a sure mark of grace to desire more. If you desire God at all, it is all due to his grace let's come back to the text maybe this is the most exciting part of the chapter it is for me because we're going to be looking at some dishes some pots and pans and pots and pans in the bible always stir me up so look at verses 7 through 11 because i think this is the most exciting part of the chapter for me verse 7 Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, I know it doesn't initially warm your heart to read those verses. I know most people don't rush to Ezra chapter 1 verses 7 through 11 for their morning devotional material. I know most people aren't getting on Facebook and putting these verses up. I understand that. I get that. But they should. Why? Because these verses are rich with practical theology. Rich with practical theology that will warm your heart. Maybe you're thinking, really, Benji? It's just some inventory of some temple utensils. Who likes taking inventory? How do 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls, and 1,000 other vessels warm the heart, and how do they provide great devotional material? Well, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 5, you will find that these are the very items that King Nebuchadnezzar carted off with himself to Babylon, along with all the exiles in 605 BC. Now, imagine what the Babylonians thought as they carried away all of these utensils that we just read about. Imagine them saying to Israel, 
where's the God of Israel now? Where's Yahweh Israel as they're carrying away all of their vessels? You say that Yahweh is the ruler of this world. He's the sovereign Lord Israel. Look what we're doing with all of your worship utensils. Silver bowl after silver bowl. Where is Yahweh now as we take away all of his belongings? So for a moment, or about 70 years, it seems as if the kings of this world rule. But now here in Ezra 1, where is Babylon? Long defeated by the Persians. The Babylonians are gone. They lost their power. Poof! They vanished off the scene of history. But what remains? The worship of Yahweh. Why? It's just another reminder that God's word controls history because history is his story. He will be worshipped throughout the earth. His fame will continue. Jesus will have a redeemed people. He is faithful to see this story to the end. So piece by piece, these items were itemized. It seems boring and tedious, right? You probably feel sorry for uh, Mithridath and Sheshbazzar as they count these things. 30 basins of gold, 27, 28, 29, check. 1,000 basins of silver, 998, 999, 1,000, check. 29 censers, check. 30 gold bowls, check. 410 silver bowls, check. It all seems so boring and tedious, but it's a picture of the stigma and the shame of the people of God being removed. One by one, it is a picture of the stigma and the shame of the people of God who were rebellious and turned away from the Lord. One by one, these pieces of silver and gold are a picture of the stigma and the shame of the people of God being removed. God is restoring his covenant people. God is restoring his people one gold basin at a time. God is removing the stigma and the shame of his people one silver bowl at a time. Oh, I know, they're just little items. They're just pots and pans. Can you get excited about a few pots and pans? You may not think so, but the answer is yes. Yes, you can get very excited about some pots and pans. Why? Because they're pictures. They're pictures of God's grace. Pictures of Yahweh's faithfulness to his people. Pictures that he keeps his promises, that he keeps his word, that he keeps covenant. Sure, we want big, spectacular pictures. We want miracles, big signs. But God often speaks to us in the little things. Like the elements of the Lord's Supper, which... We ate and drank last week. The elements of the Lord's Supper, they don't seem like much, just some bread and juice. They seem very insignificant. I mean, the world would come in here and say, that's a picture of God's faithfulness and his love? A few crackers and some juice? You guys are crazy. I can buy that at Albertsons, and that's a picture of God's faithfulness to you? Yes, 
a few seemingly insignificant items, crackers and juice, that you can buy at the grocery store are tangible pictures of the event that took away our shame and stigma, the broken and bloodied body of Jesus Christ. So don't despise the two small elements of the Lord's Supper because our very life hangs on what they stand for. What did the Lord say through Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 11 through 14? What did he say to his people? He said it to Israel in exile, not to America. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore. And God's word moved history to make it come true for us as well. God's word controls history and the future. And the hope that we have came through the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's call upon him now. Let's come and pray to him. He will hear us. Let's seek him. And we will find him if we seek him with all of our heart. If God can take care of some measly old pots and pans for 70 years and not one of them gets lost, don't you think he can handle what's happening in your life today? Think about that. If God can take care of some just some measly old pots and pans for 70 years in another country and not one of them gets lost, Don't you think he can handle what's happening in your life today? He can. He's that kind of God. Ask him today to stir your heart to love and trust him more.